prayer. The passage for today is Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4 to 11. It's the book Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4 to 11. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father, father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the covenants, the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen, to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servants today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Good morning. Good, morning. Good morning. We are continuing our study this morning in the book of Nehemiah. And to study this for the next several months with a question, we want to understand what does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to live as the church when the church is not strong? And when the church is embedded in a society that is not particularly happy with her, what does it mean to be the people of God? We learned last week that Nehemiah was a Jewish official in the Persian Empire. He's a very trusted official, highly placed, very at home in Persia. But he's an official whose first loyalty was to God and also to God's people. And we heard in the opening verses that God's people in Israel were not doing well. That they had just suffered a political reversal that produced that very vivid word picture for us of Jerusalem as a city whose walls were broken down, whose gates were burned with fire. We realized then that Jerusalem was not able to develop her own culture. She was not protected, very vulnerable, not able to have her own culture, not able to have some kind of control over interaction with the peoples around her. This looks like this is not working. People living there uh, had no way to protect themselves. Basically a very weak situation. That's exactly where the American church finds herself nearly 2,500 years later. Very good book on church history by Bruce Shelley called Church History in Plain Language. Very readable book, has sold over 300,000 copies. Toward the end, Shelley talks about what Christianity in the Western world looks like from the 1900s on. And he uses two words. He says this is how you can sort of sum up 
Christianity in Europe and North America, it's gone dormant and it's in decline. Words that ought to really impact you and affect you, dormant. The church is deeply asleep. It's basically inactive, so asleep it's hard to rouse her. Still alive, but if he didn't know better, he'd mistake her for being dead, dormant, and in decline. Her numbers are falling, her influence is shrinking, she struggles to engage the world around her. She's more impacted and affected by the world around her than she is impacting it. Think about that picture of the church as being dormant and in decline. You realize not a whole lot of difference between that and what Nehemiah was looking at in Jerusalem. Huge problem now, huge problem back then. And in the face of this overwhelming problem, Nehemiah begins to pray. And that just makes sense. It's the reason why a lot of people pray. Circumstances are way beyond can someone's control. Life feels too big. feels like you don't have the ability to actually make happen what you want to have happen, and so you pray. Even people who are not super religious pray. Why? In light of how large the problem is, they realize we need someone bigger. Someone who will weigh in here. Someone who will do something about it. Praying makes sense. It's the first thing that you have to do in your own personal life. It's the first thing that you have to do for the church, as we see what she's facing in the U.S. But there's a question here. How do you know when you've prayed enough? Realize there's a continuum. On one end of the continuum are people, they can't stand to sit very long. They always have to be very active. And so they want to shoot off a quick prayer, jump up, and race out and do something. Prayer to them doesn't feel all that productive. On the opposite end of the continuum are people who, they're a little scared. They don't want to act, and so prayer does what? It becomes this excuse for activity. You realize that act, acting is hard. You have to take a risk. You have to put yourself out there. You might not succeed. So it seems safer to just keep on praying, keep on praying, keep on praying, because, okay, that, 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 that at least feels like you're doing something. You fall off the continuum on both ends. How do you know when you've prayed enough? How do you know when you've prayed enough personally? How do you know when you've prayed enough for the church? How do you know when it's time to do something else. There are five things in Nehemiah's prayer that show you how you know. We're going to go through these five throughout the rest of the morning, but let me just run through them real briefly. You know that you've prayed enough when you see God bigger than you used to see Him before. Secondly, you know that you've prayed enough when you see His deep devotion to His people. Thirdly, you know that you've prayed enough when you're now on board with His agenda. Fourth, you know that you've prayed enough when you see that the primary problem that God's people have had throughout the ages is that they've not been on board with his agenda. And fifth, you know that you've prayed enough when you see why you can expect him to work on behalf of his people anyway. You see God bigger. You see him more caring. You see what he's doing. You see how his people have not been doing what he's doing. And you see why you can trust him to do something about it anyway. So number one, first we see God bigger. Look again there at how Nehemiah begins his prayer in verse 5. He says, I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You notice that Nehemiah does not start with what he wants. What he actually asks for doesn't come till the end of his prayer. It's actually one of the uh, briefest parts of his prayer. He doesn't start with what he wants. He doesn't also start talking about, here's the big problem that I see out there. He doesn't take this as an opportunity to start processing his feelings and his reactions. First, he starts with the person to whom he's speaking. 
He starts with God. It reminds you of how Jesus starts when his disciples ask him, teach us to pray. And he says, here's how you ought to pray. Start by saying, our Father in heaven. Now, why is that? Why would you start with God? I know there are those times where you need that quick, short, desperate prayer. It's, it's not a more formalized prayer. But when you have the time when you are actually working things through, prayers tend to start with God first. Why is that? Because you need more perspective. A bigger perspective. Starting with the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, reminds you that the thing that you see on earth that's upsetting you, that's not the biggest thing that there is in the universe. It's certainly not the biggest thing that's outside the universe. And so as big and important, as scary as that thing is, God towers above it. And once you see how big he is, this great and awesome God, you start to see everything else in its proper size. You see it in its proper size because it's in comparison to the one who made it. This one who stands outside of this universe. And so you start going through the scripture, you start finding things out about how big this God is. You realize that Isaiah 40, verse 12, tells you he can hold the oceans in his hand. And yet he's intimately involved in the details of life. Matthew 10, verse 30. He numbers the hair on your head. He keeps an active census of your hair follicles. And you, you start to realize he's really, really big. He's really, really involved. And as you see how great and awesome he is, what does it do? It calms your heart. You realize the world's not out of control. You're not at the mercy of evil people. You're not at the mercy of impersonal forces. You're ultimately in the hands of the great and awesome God. And so is the church. The church is not at the mercy of random historical events. She's not at the mercy of the rise and fall of the kingdom. She's not at the mercy of shifting philosophies and worldviews. Instead, there's a great and awesome God who is completely in charge of everything that takes place in his world. That's the one that you're praying to. That's the one that you're coming to, knowing that you're going to ask him something. So how do you know that you've prayed enough to be ready to act? Number one, you start to see God bigger than he used to be in your mind. And you think, okay, well, how, how do I know that I've actually seen him big enough? You've seen him big enough when everything else takes its proper size. Skip down to the end of Nehemiah's prayer, and you'll see the impact that starting with God has now had on Nehemiah. Verse 11, he gets to his request, and notice what he's asking there. He says, give success to your servant today. That means himself. Give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. I think, okay, who, who is this man that he's talking about, this man that he wants mercy from? He tells you in the very next line, because he tells you, now I was cupbearer to the king. So this man that he's looking for mercy from is actually the king, and here you see the impact of starting with God. Because in the Persian Empire, there was no one higher than the king. The king was total power concentrated in one individual. Yeah, there were some laws that bound him in certain ways, but there's wide latitude inside those laws. And pretty much what the king wanted, the king did. And so you learned to live in fear of the king. You learn in the book of Esther that if you approached a Persian king without being summoned, you risked being put to death even if you were the queen. In chapter 2 of Nehemiah, we're going to see that you risked your life simply by appearing in front of the king without a smile on your face, even if you were an official highly placed in his realm. Look at Daniel. 
you discover that it's reasonable for a Persian king to demand that you treat him not simply higher than you would treat any other human being, but that you would treat him as higher than any god. And yet here's Nehemiah, and he's talking about the king. But he's not talking about him as an exalted god. He's not even talking about him as a demigod. He's just simply a man. He's a human being. How did he get there? He started first with God. And when he saw God as great and awesome as God actually is, the rest of the universe starts to have its proper space. Do you have that sense when you pray for the church? Do you have that sense that atheist philosophers, anti-religious politicians, those people who seem so powerful, they're simply human beings. Do you have that sense that any movement they produce is only possible because it's taking place inside the world that God himself is holding together. They're acting inside the middle of it. You have the sense, therefore, that the forces of secularization are no match for this God. That if the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church, nothing else can either. You know that you've prayed enough for the church when you see God far larger so that everything else becomes its proper size. Secondly, you know that you've prayed enough for the church when you see God's deep devotion to his people. It's great to know that the world's not out of control because God is so big, but... There's a problem there because if he's so big that nearly omnipotent kings suddenly become mere human beings, how is that good for you? I mean, doesn't that make you actually a little bit smaller? That's a little scarier. If you don't know that this God is actually going to use his power for your benefit, it's not a great thing to know that he's the great and awesome God. And so Nehemiah continues there in verse 5, recognizing that he's not simply talking to the great and awesome God who's Lord God of heaven, He's also the one who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He keeps covenant and steadfast love with his people. God has a special loyalty to his people. It's the meaning behind the Hebrew word there for steadfast love. He's called them out of all the nations so they would be his special people. They are the apple of his eye, the center of everything that he does here on earth. And in one sense, all people are special because God has created them. But God is not embarrassed to say, actually, his people are even more special to him. They have a special relationship to him. He's not embarrassed to say things like Isaiah 43.3. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Seba in exchange for you. He doesn't get embarrassed to say that does not offend his sense of fairness. Or Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 8, his people are the ones that he leaps over the mountains and bounds over the hills just to come and be near. Zephaniah 3, 17, they're the ones that he rejoices over with singing. God's people are at the center of what he cares about, which helps you understand that how is he going to use all that great and awesome power? He's going to use it on their behalf. And he's going to do whatever he needs to so they actually live well on this earth. So you know that you've prayed enough when first you see God much bigger than you ever thought. Secondly, when you see his devotion to his people. And thirdly, you know that you've prayed enough when you are now on board with his agenda. You need to pray until you start to remember that this is God's world and not yours. And that, therefore, a good life is not defined 
by what you think that life should be. It's defined by what God tells you it should be. That's why he gave his people commandments and expected them to keep his commandments. What are his commandments? They are a reflection of his heart, a reflection of who he is as a person. They're a reflection of what he values. They're a reflection of how he lives. And so he gives them to his people, expecting that his people then will adopt them as their way of living. He has an intention on this earth. He's creating a people who will live a certain kind of way. So if you want your prayers to this great and awesome covenant-keeping God to be effective, you have to realize he's not a neutral power source that you just sort of plug your agenda into. It's not a genie that you, okay, now I finally figured out how to rub the lamp and now I get what I want. Instead, God has his own agenda. He has his own plans. And all that awesome power that he has, that he uses on behalf of his people, is to create a people who live with each other, who live with him, like he lives with them. Everything then gets filtered through that intention. So when Nehemiah finally gets down in verse 11 to that place where he's making a request to God, and he says, Give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man, this king. Nehemiah is thinking of success as it relates to what God himself is already doing. As it's related to God establishing his people who keep his commands. Nehemiah is not defining success apart from those plans not asking for some kind of success apart from what God is doing. He's not asking, you know, God, give me a promotion here, or give me a pay raise, or give me a, a, a good annual review. All those things may be great, and God may choose to give him all those things. That is not what Nehemiah means by success. He's not asking God to serve him. He's asking that God would give him what he needs in order to serve God. That's his primary identity. He says it twice, verse 6, verse 11. As he's talking to God, he keeps saying, you're a servant, that's who I am. It's his privilege to serve God. He's not thinking that God is the one who serves me. And Nehemiah can't think of a better way to do that than by serving God's people. That's why he wants success with this man. So that he can be a part of helping God's people be as strong as they can so that they have a secure place where they can live out this life that God has given to them and live out God's commands. When Nehemiah asks, verse 11, for success, it's not to advance his own agenda. It's to advance God's agenda. Not for his own sake, it's for God's sake. And by extension, because God loves his people, it's for the sake of his people. In other words, when you pray, you need to pray to be part of God's plan. You don't pray asking God, please fit into my plan for my life. Instead, you're praying, God, give me what I need so that I can fit into your plan. You're asking, use your faith, use your awesome power to gift me in such a way that I enter into what you're doing. And that means that you need to pray with the church in mind. Nehemiah doesn't pray for the church. Nehemiah prays for Jerusalem. Why is that? that, that that's his concern, that he would make Jerusalem strong. It's because verse 9, that's where God chose to make his name well. It's the one place on earth where God said, that's where I'm going to put my name so that if you're looking for me, you come to Jerusalem and there you will find me. But you realize after Jesus, God dwells where? Not in a geographical place. He dwells among his people. 
He dwells among his church. So our prayers are not for a geographical location. They are for the church. Your personal prayers, your requests, have to take into account the larger plans that God has for his people. You have to pray that what he does for you lets you fit into what he's doing with his people because God doesn't keep covenant with you merely as an individual. He keeps covenant with you as an individual within the group of people that he's keeping covenant with. And so your biggest challenge is not trying to figure out what do I need as an individual. When you're praying, your biggest challenge is what do I need so that I can fit into what God is doing in his church. So when you have that job opportunity, you're trying to figure out, do I take this job opportunity, do I not take this job opportunity? You have to take into account, how does that opportunity fit into what God is doing in his church? That's what I need to be praying about. Or when you pray about whether you should move or not, should I get a new house, should I get a new apartment? You have to take into account, how does that move or that not move fit into what God is doing in his church? When you pray about what organization to join, who to date, who to marry, should I get more education? Should I get more education? Where should I go to get more education? All of those things that are personally concerning to you. You have to take into account what is God doing in the larger world, in his church, and how do those things fit into what he's doing, or how do those things not fit into what he's doing? If you don't pray that way, effectively, what you're trying to say to God is, I want you to fit into my life. I'm not interested in fitting into yours. That's one of the reasons you heard Pastor David announce earlier that we're going to have a prayer meeting next Sunday. It's one of the reasons why I want to make more time to pray as a congregation. God's given us at Renewal a lot of opportunities, a lot of gifts, but we're not going to be able to use them well if we don't come to Him in prayer. And so the pastors and elders are urging us, calling us as a congregation to pray. We need to see that our great and awesome God has plans for Renewal and Rome that he has purposes. We need his help if we're going to have any success in actually carrying those out. Now we know that not everybody can make it next Sunday. But if you can, we need 1230. And so let me urge you, if you're able, a lot of us stay actually till about 1 o'clock anyway on Sunday morning. If you're able, spend that first time right after the service, connect with your friends, and then head over to the chapel at 1230 so that we can pray together. We want to be more than a group of people who enjoy each other. That's important. That's part of being the people of God. But that's not the sum total. We want to pray so that we can understand what does it mean to be in the middle of what God is doing in the Philadelphia suburbs. We're not going to be able to do that unless this great and awesome God empowers us and gives us success. So please join us next week as we pray. So you know that you've prayed enough then when first, you see God bigger. Second, when you see his covenant loyalty to his people. Third, when you're on board with his agenda. And fourth, when you confess that you haven't been on board. It's a lot of what Nehemiah prays, actually. It's the problem that the Israelites have created for themselves. God promised, verse 5, to keep covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, with those who keep his commandments. And the Israelites have refused. They had a good idea of what a good life would be, and, and that life did not include him. They liked it when God rescued them. They liked it when he gave them a land. They liked it when he provided for them, when he cared for them. 
They likely gave them, but him, uh, not nearly as much. They didn't want him or his ways. And so Nehemiah confesses, verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. It's a really strong word. We have acted how? Corruptly. We took all the gifts that you gave to us from your great and awesome power in order to establish your people that we keep your commands. We took all those gifts and we used them elsewhere. We have acted corruptly. Nehemiah confesses, it wasn't just one or two of us. It wasn't just most of us. It was all of us. It says verse 6, Even I and my father's house have sinned. And so they had had to learn the hard way that there were consequences. Moses had uh, told them for God in the words of verse 8, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. So there's no surprise here. God told them up front, there's an expectation that they needed to obey him. They needed to live with him and with each other like he lived with them. If they didn't, he was going to send them away. He'd send them into exile. Now, that didn't mean that they stopped being his people. Because he tells them in verse 9 that if they returned to him, he would bring them back. They're not going to stop being his people. But if they're unfaithful, they would be his people scattered. They would not be his people gathered. They would not be his people under his protection, under his care, experiencing his blessing. And that's what took place about 140 years before Nehemiah was praying. They'd been unfaithful. They'd been unfaithful for centuries. But God had not been unfaithful. He kept his word that he promised to them, and he sent Nebuchadnezzar to break down Jerusalem's walls to deport the people to scatter them. Later, they had this blessing. They were able to return to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple, the place where God chose to put his name. They started rebuilding the walls. Things looked really positive. Looked like, okay, maybe God is keeping his promise to gather us again. And then there's that reversal. King Artaxerxes, who had been supporting them, let their enemies tear the walls down. Now, if you're living in Jerusalem at that point in time, put yourself back there. There's a conversation going on around. There's questions in people's minds. You can hear them talking to each other. Hey, the last time this happened, the very next step was what? We, we got deported. We went into exile. Is that what's next for us? Are we going into exile again? Is God done with us? Is he going to set us adrift in a world that we can't control? Will he lead us to the mercy of our enemies? Is he no longer looking out for us? And Nehemiah comes back in this prayer and says, no. Lord God, we have sinned, that's true. But you are not done with your people. We're the ones who derailed your plans, but you can put your plans back on track, and I'm asking you to do that. Do whatever it takes. Give me success so I can help make your people strong. He's praying to be part of God's agenda for building up his people. But how can he dare to ask that? They've been disloyal. They've wanted nothing to do with what God was doing. Sure, it looks like they must have been keeping God's commands because they're allowed back into Jerusalem, but this is a holy God. It only takes a little disloyalty to break his commands. Maybe they've done that again. 
He promised to scatter them if they don't keep his commands. The wall's been broken down again. The gates are burned with fire. Is God about to scatter them again? Nehemiah dares to pray differently. But on what basis? What's his justification? Why is he allowed to do that? What does he know that lets him pray so boldly? It's not just an important question for Nehemiah, is it? It's an important question for us, for you and for me. Because if it's true that God loves those who keep his commandments, what if you haven't? If he scatters those who are unfaithful, what does it take to be faithful? How much do you have to do so that he'll consider you faithful? If you keep 80% of the commands, is that enough? Sounds kind of low. 90%? 95%, 99, 99 99.9 perfect God. How much do you have to do to be good enough? Once you've been scattered, how much do you have to do in order to be gathered? How much do you have to keep so that God will say, ah, all right, it's good enough. I guess you've returned. I'll bring you back to the land. This is the tension that you find on almost every page in the Old Testament. God loves his people. He chose unilaterally to do that. He made a covenant with them. He loves his people, absolutely. His people who absolutely keep his commandments. See, God's not going to sacrifice his righteousness. Not even for his people. It's his beauty. It's his perfection. They have to keep his commandments. They have to be holy as he is holy, or they can't live with him. How do you resolve that? How do you resolve him being loyal to people who aren't loyal to him? How do you pray for them? How can you pray for them when they haven't been what he called them to be? How can you pray for a church that's dormant and in decline after everything that God's done for her? How can your pastors and elders call you to pray for renewal and mind? Or for any other church, for that matter. What's the basis? The basis comes from the last thing that shows Nehemiah has prayed enough. He's already prayed enough to know how big God is. He's prayed enough to know that God loves his people. He's prayed enough to have a sense of God's agenda and to know that God's people are their own biggest problem. What's the last thing that he has to know? Look at the logic of his prayer. It works this way. Verse 5, God keeps covenant with those who keep his commandments. Verses 6 and 7, God's people have not kept his commandments. Verse 8, God promised to scatter those who don't keep his commands. Verse 9, he promises to gather back those who keep his commands. Already have experienced the scattering, so now if you want to be gathered, what do you expect Nehemiah to say next? based on what you just see there. What's logical in that sequence? If God keeps covenant with those who keep his commands and he gathers those who keep his commands, don't you expect Nehemiah to say something like, God, your people are not keeping your commands. They didn't used to, that's true, but they are now. And therefore, God, you keep your end of the bargain, restore them to the land like you said you would. 
In other words, don't you expect to hear something like, God, we deserve this. We earned it. We did what you said to do. We returned to you. Now, on the basis of what you have done, keep your end of the bargain. I realize a lot of people pray like that. God, I've done enough. I've lived a good life. I've done what you say. Now do for me what I'm asking because why? Because I deserve it. I earned it. So the formula works, right? God, I did what you said. Now you do what you said. Other people look at that and they realize, wow. Uh, if that's what it takes to be restored back to God and to what God's doing on earth, I don't have any hope. Because I'm always messing up. I, I, I don't get it right. I, I didn't get it right this morning. So I can't come to God and say, I deserve this. I know I don't. I haven't earned it. So I just won't come at all. It doesn't make sense for me to do that. I just won't pray. There's no way that the great and awesome God's going to listen to me because I have not kept his commands. Second person sounds more humble. They are more humble. But did you hear what they're saying? They're, they're using exactly the same formula as the first person. First guy says, I earned this, so I'm asking for it. Second person says, I didn't earn this, so I won't ask for it. Both are basing their prayers on what they've done and on how good they've been. So third person comes along, realizes the hopelessness of those two positions, recognizes the impossibility of keeping God's commands 100% of the times. And so this person says, I don't deserve this. I haven't earned it. But God, please do it anyway, but I, there's no reason for you to do it. And so I'm just kind of hoping that you will because I, I think you're nice and I would just really like to have this happen. At least gets you out of the trap of asking or not asking based on how well you've done. But that is not why Nehemiah is praying. Last week we noticed that when Nehemiah heard the news about Jerusalem, he sat down. He wept and mourned for days. He fasted and prayed. I'm kind of curious. It doesn't say how many days. So you kind of wonder, was that a couple days? Three, four, five, seven? Okay, that's starting to sound like a lot. Next week we're going to get a new time stamp in chapter 2. And we're going to discover it's four months later. Four months that he's been praying this. 120 days, give or take. 120 days where he's been praying, verse 11, give success to your servant today. And when it doesn't come today, he prays again for success today. You don't pray with that kind of perseverance for 120 days. You don't pray with that kind of endurance. If the best that you've got is some vague hope that maybe God will be nice to you, that weak hope will not give you confidence to keep asking and asking and asking and asking. So what does? It's in that little word there in verse 10, redeemed. Nehemiah prays, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. 
whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. It's almost an exact quote out of the book of Deuteronomy. It takes you all the way back to when God first brought his people out of Egypt, when he redeemed them. They were in slavery. They could do nothing about it on their own. And so by his own power, all on himself, he rescued them. He made Egypt give them up and called the Exodus. And it was the Old Testament picture of salvation. It was the picture that a bunch of other authors will, would all reference back and forth. It was the Old Testament picture of salvation until Israel returned from exile. And then that became the new picture of salvation because it also was not something that they did for themselves. They're not in Jerusalem because of how strong and powerful they had become. They were there because of what God had done for them. It's a new redemption. Nehemiah recognizes this and he says, God, you redeemed them. Not just long ago from Egypt, right now from exile. And because I can see what you've already done, I know something about what you're going to do. I know that you've not abandoned them, even when things don't really look all that good. I know that you're going to continue to work on their behalf. You have redeemed them. That means you're not going to quit on them now. You won't quit on them ever. And so I can pray with confidence because you should answer me. Sounds odd to say it that way. Not because I earned it. Nehemiah says, I'm one of those who have sinned. But because as part of your people, I've been redeemed. My sin is gone from before you. I've been given the right to ask because of what someone else earned for me. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn, And Can It Be? There's a very strong line in it at the end. It says, Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. It says, I claim it. I deserve it. I didn't earn it, but it was earned. And it was earned for me. And so I now come and I claim that. It's mine. If you know that God has redeemed his people, you will pray for them. Not once, not twice, but months, years. You'll pray for God's people because you know that God should answer you. You know, it sounds really strange to say it that way. You don't deserve it because you've been so good. God's people don't deserve it because they've been so good. You deserve it because it was earned for you. You've been redeemed. It's a gift. Not because he kept his commands perfectly, but because someone else did Someone who came and never failed once to obey a single command. Someone who kept covenant with God just as strongly as God kept covenant with him. Someone who earned God's good pleasure, who earned God's love. Someone who deserved to have God listen to him, to give him what he asked for, because he only ever asked for what would serve God's people. Jesus, this someone, Worked hard to always be close to God. He earned the right to be close to God. And then he identified his people in their sin. He could have used Nehemiah's language. Even I and my father's house have sinned. And because of that, he was scattered. This one who earned the right to be close to God was sent away. Counted among the transgressors for your sake took on himself every failure of God's people to keep his commands. Took on your failure 
to keep God's commands. And so he was scattered. So that what? So that you could be gathered. And the glory of the gospel is that Jesus actually goes before you. He also was gathered, raised from the dead, brought back into the presence of God. He's the first to participate in the new exodus. An exodus out of slavery, but slavery from sin. And if you trust him to rescue you, you get to participate in that rescue, to participate with him in that exodus, so that when you return to God, you will never be scattered again. That means that you can then pray to this great and awesome God, knowing that he loves you, knowing that he will answer you when you pray according to his agenda. Why? I'm going to say it provocatively, because in a sense, you deserve that, because he purchased it for you. Does that still sound funny to put it that way? That means you haven't prayed enough yet. You need to pray until you realize the reality of what God has purchased for you. And then you pray to this God, this one who longs to gather his people, his church, and you pray for success so that you can be part of making his people strong. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the great and awesome God, the one that we would not be allowed to come near except you have redeemed us, you have purchased us, you have made us part of your people. Lord, you have removed from us the sin that sent us into exile away from you. You've brought us back. You've brought us to the Father. Now, Lord God, we confess it's not because of our goodness and our greatness. It's because of yours. And based on your goodness, Lord, will you give us success? And will you use us in a small way or large way? I don't care. Will you use us to make your church strong in this region? I pray this in Jesus' name.